Hi, my name is Dana. I'm the editor-in-chief of the teen-led Just Allergy Things magazine. The other team members and I at the Just Allergy Things magazine decided to start our podcast to spread food allergy education to a greater audience. With this podcast, we aim to share our experience with food allergies and give advice, comfort, and support to those who have food allergies or to those who want to learn more about the cause. We also hope to shed light on the invisible impacts of living with food allergies and expose them to the non-allergic population. So, whether you have food allergies or not, we hope that you join us on our journey of spreading food allergy awareness. Hi everyone, in this episode I chat with the allergy chef, Kathleena. Kathleena has over 200 food allergies and intolerances, including most types of water. Her family also has restricted diets, none of them the same. After a long journey of misdiagnosis, Kathleena was told that she had 30 days to live. After living through it, Kathleena made it her mission to help others with food allergies and special diets. She started a bakery, published several cookbooks, developed free resources, and has advocated for food allergies on a national level. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Kathleen, aka The Allergy Chef. How's it going? It's going well. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Let's just dive right into it. So when did your troubles with food really begin? Um, I've actually been sick my whole life. I was undiagnosed, um, probably like the first 20 some odd years. And I mean, there were a lot of moments where looking back, you know, hindsight being 2020, that doctors definitely could have made a definitive diagnosis and no one did. Um, and I think for me personally, that's probably my only real grievance with the whole diagnosis. Like, I know a lot of people are like, oh, I can't eat this. I can't eat that. And I'm like, no, I'm just mad that I had to suffer extra long because no one like said, oh, isn't this really obvious? This kid is eating food and getting sick. Oh, you know, so, um, really just the whole life, honestly. Yeah. So you started out getting sick to chocolate, eggs, and milk when you were a child. So when would you say things really started to get worse? Um, geez, that's a hard question. I would say, I mean, the, the real like before after moment, I think for me at least growing up would be um, in my teenage years, I was on a trip and I pretty much had like a 30 hour seizure type of thing. And um, it all started with eating food and it was a meal that had a lot of gluten and dairy and wheat and probably some other stuff too. And, um, you know, I was rushed to like the ER after being on a flight and it was like this whole thing and, and every specialist, every doctor who walked in, you know, what happened? And I would, I kept saying the same thing. My story never changed. I ate the food. I got sick and they ran every single test except for a food allergy test. I would say that's really when I think I would say I was hyper aware of what was wrong with me, but no one like there were no advocates. There was no one saying, hey, let's figure this out or anything of that nature. It was just me being hyper aware of how miserable I was. Yeah. So when you were, you couldn't eat those, you know, eggs, chocolate, milk, did it ever cross your mind that it could be allergies or what did you think? Why did you think you couldn't eat those things? It would be hard to say. I mean, I was a little kid, right? Little kids don't think of the word allergy, especially like, you know, back in my day, I say that like, you're so young, right? Back in my day. Um, we, you know, the word allergy, 
people were used to like seasonal allergies, things like that. They knew anaphylaxis, right? If, if a kid's going to die, like we know, oh, it's really obvious they ate the food, they got really sick. Because I have so many non-traditional or non-life-threatening symptoms that just make me incredibly ill or incredibly miserable, no one was drawing the connections. So, it was, it, you know, doctors would just be like, oh, just don't feed the kid that food if, you know, if it's not working. You know, or I was always complaining about not feeling well. It took me forever to eat food. And I think it was really just, you know, subconsciously as a child, I didn't like food because it was making me ill. And, um, you know, where everybody else took 10 or 15 minutes to eat, I could take up to two hours, you know, and, and I was, I had all the classic signs, right? And, and it just, nobody drew any conclusions. And it's not like I could do it for myself at that point. Yeah. So when you say you didn't feel well after you ate those things, what did you typically feel like nauseous or overall not feeling well? I would say there was a lot, a lot of nausea, a lot of wanting to throw up a lot of times. I had a lot of GI distress, like all the time. Um, there was a lot, like, as I got older, the mental health element definitely kicked in like big time. And I was huge. I was one of the fattest people you'd ever meet. And, you know, a lot of people don't connect weight gain and weight loss to food allergy and all that sort of stuff, but there's a definitive connection for some people. And I happen to be one of those people. Um, it just, that, and just never really feeling like your best, you know, never really having energy just being, I don't know, ill, sick. Yeah. yeah. So when you were a child, did you track that to those specific foods or overall, was it always like that? I think as a child, I would say there was a good amount of just awareness that I didn't feel good. But again, I was a child. So it's not like anyone could tell me what was wrong. And it's not like, you know, the, the problem with kids and food allergies is, a lot of adults, especially if you as the adult don't have enough awareness of what's going on, when your kid is constantly saying, my stomach hurts, my this hurts, my that hurts, you sort of write it off. Like, oh, it's just a this, so it's just a that. You know, unless they're like on the ground crying in pain, which happened several times, you know, and I had to go to the ER for that as a kid, you know, and they, they would never diagnose me with anything. And so um, it, it's, you're just miserable, but no one, no one's there helping you saying this is what's wrong with you you know and that's definitely something that i try to advocate for now and teach people who don't have that language easily ready for them to help them understand what their kids might be going through yeah so for me personally i would definitely say that having food allergies affected my childhood would you say the same and do you think it negatively impacted your childhood or it was just something you always experienced i don't know it's a good question, but it's hard to answer because for me, it wasn't like, you know how with some people, when you're clearly diagnosed, you don't eat the food and then there's the cross contact and then they have a reaction. There's those moments, right? Those heightened moments of like, this is happening right now. It was never like that for me. It was a constant. And it's really the difference between, you know, burning your hand in hot water versus having your hand under, you know, hot running water constantly. And so when there's never a break, you never really get a moment to say, oh, there's something like really wrong. It just always is. Yeah. So going back to you can have eggs, chocolate, milk, did a doctor ever told you, tell you to stay away from those or you just kind of made that correlation yourself? 
Um, as a child, I think the pain was severe enough that I just didn't eat the food. And I don't know that anyone really questioned me. They just assumed I didn't like it. And that was kind of the underlying thing. Everybody just assumed I didn't like food or I was a picky eater because like, so for me, I would actually take all of my food apart. I don't know if you've ever seen a kid do this, but um, I would literally deconstruct anything you served me. Um, and then I would slowly eat each component, you know? And so everybody just assumed I was a picky eater. I don't think it was that. I honestly believe my body was just fed up and it was as a child, you know, with child logic, because it's definitely not complete logic with child logic. That was the solution. I'll just take everything apart and eat really, really slowly, apparently. But um, yeah, everybody just assumed wrong. Yeah. So when you were a child and you were experiencing this, experiencing this, did you have anyone to talk to or to fall back on about? These definitely not. No. 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 Okay. Yeah. So it was a lonely little road I had. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. So, would you say, let's just say, you're not so warm and fuzzy upbringing caused your battle with food to worsen, or do you think it was just like constant, like not knowing what's going on, or would you say that your childhood definitely impacted it? I think it was a domino effect. You know, I know for as an adult, I understand that I have multiple conditions that all overlap. Um, and most specialists would agree with me in saying that continued exposure as a child definitely caused a weakening of the system over time and just caused more problems to compound over time. So had it been caught early on, I probably wouldn't be in the boat I'm in right now. Like maybe I'd be like 50% in the boat, but it definitely wouldn't be this bad now. Okay. Would you say like the, the, tr let's like trauma you experienced did that like make things worse or do you think it was just because you continued eating what you couldn't or was it an overall like it was in everything um I don't know that I'd use the word trauma it's I don't know it it's it's hard to quantify because again it was a constant you know it's it's different in the sense of so I grew up in an abusive household right I understand a lot, the long lasting effects of abuse, right? On a person's psyche, on all these different things. With food, it's, it's harder to say, like, I think there were other things that were bigger at the time where food kind of took a backseat. And I'd say growing up in an abusive home affected me more than eating food I was allergic to. Oh, okay. So Kathleen, you graduated college when you were 19. That's amazing. <laughs> Let's just say that first and foremost, like, congrats. That's really cool. Thank you. So could you talk about how that worked out? Like, when did you start? What was it like moving to another state? And did your struggles with food worsen through the process? Um, so I started going to college when I was 14. And wow. I was doing college and high school at the same time. I essentially played the system. Um, I lived in a space where we were allowed to double dip. So if you took, this was before double dipping was a thing. We were like one of the pilot programs kind of. And so some friends and I, we were doing like, I had a friend who was going to like a major UC doing some courses and I was doing some courses elsewhere. And um, it was, I mean, I'm a very driven person, highly competitive, all that sort of stuff. So um, I wouldn't say that the education element was difficult, 
for me, honestly, education was an escape. Um, it was something that I found joy in. I enjoy the process of learning. You know, I taught myself how to read when I was like two years old because I just wanted to know. Um, and so that's, that's just who I am. So I wouldn't say that, I would say education and food were two separate things. Like it didn't, I don't know that education, even moving changed food because I was just, I was no, I wasn't diagnosed until after college. Like I, it was several years after that, before I had a diagnosis. Okay. I know after college you moved and then moved back again. Did the moving process make anything worse or was it constant? Um, I think from the environmental angle, it was worse where I moved to. Um, there was a lot of farming and looking back on it now, it's like, oh, okay, I see the connection, right? Um, especially when you have someone with like an airborne allergy and you're you know, driving through the fields and all this stuff. Um, it definitely at the time made things worse, but moving back didn't necessarily make anything better, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I know I was reading your story and you said that stress kills literally. And I think that's such an important message that everyone should take to heart. Could you talk a little bit about how stress impacted your battle um, with food? Yeah. So depending on your condition, stress can it totally exacerbate the symptoms, right? Um, for people with what I like to call a simple and straightforward, pure, true food allergy with quick and obvious reactions, right? One of our kids has those. He eats dairy, he throws up, like it's like, you know what the problem was. Um, it's not the same, right? For someone in that specific boat, should you have stress in your life? Well, no, like no one really should, you know, it takes a toll on you. But with other conditions, with food and um, your immune system and some conditions like UC or Crohn's, sometimes with leaky gut um, and just some of the more rare conditions, when you're under a lot of physical, mental, emotional stressors, um, they totally can impact your body's ability to heal, the body's ability to even digest. You know, for me personally, I can't eat in a loud space. Like it needs to be quiet like zero stress um, because for me, if I am under too much stress, even when eating, it elicits physical pain. Like there's a, a, an obvious connection there. So for some people, it literally will be your demise being under that much stress. Yeah, so I know you had a pretty lengthy process of finding a diagnosis. Do you mind touching on that a little bit? Um, a lot of it was done on my own, all out of pocket for the most part. Um, I kind of got fed up with Western medicine because I felt like I was running into a wall where, you know, I was being blamed for things. They all wanted to focus on the wrong thing, in my opinion, you know? Um, and even with all of the doctors I went to, no one ever said food allergy, you know, and that still bothers me, like still bugs me that doctors are, I feel like Western... Western medicine, I feel, has an amazing place in the world for acute symptoms. If you are having a heart attack, oh my goodness, are they awesome, right? Like they have all the tools, they have all the gadgets, they've got the right meds, they can really patch you up and get you back on the road again. But if you have an ongoing chronic illness, Western medicine, I feel, for the most part, 
is not your friend. Like they're there to slap a bandaid on things. It's a pill for every ill. And very few are looking for root causes, which is where functional medicine kind of comes into play because it's like, you know, the, the bridge between the gap. And a lot of them work as teams and they are looking at root causes, but they're also looking at symptoms and, you know, trying to help you in the meantime. Um, and then you have some places where you have clinics like the Mayo Clinic where what they do is root cause. They just want to figure out what's wrong with you, right? But they take on those extreme fringe cases. And sometimes even they can't figure out. So they just kind of go, hmm, we think it's this. Like they'll give you like a generic, you know, um, diagnosis because they just honestly don't know. I think for me, I lucked out in that, you know, I had someone willing to say up front, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I'll help you figure it out. Like to me, that that's what a real doctor is, right? Do no harm. That's that's the core of what they should be doing. And so this doctor, you know, he tapped into his network of people. And, you know, when we were trying to figure out the more rare symptoms, um, he would try to find out if anybody had any information and he would look for specialists and we would kind of compare notes and go back and forth. And, you know, finally one day he just kind of said, maybe it's gluten. I've been reading a lot about gluten. This was like before the whole gluten-free fad thing was big. And um, it's like, let's just, let's just try it, see what happens, right? Because it was all just one big giant experiment at that point. And I went gluten-free and I started feeling better. I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. We're onto something. So I love science. Um, I'm a huge nerd. And I started just experimenting on myself and I would methodically remove foods and I was starting to feel better and better and better and better. And finally, one day I actually felt good. And it was only because I ate like two things. And then we were like, okay, clearly food is an issue. So then we started ordering all sorts of crazy tests um, and lots of food tests, GI tests, food intolerance. Like we tested everything just to get an idea of what was going on since we had a clue and turns out allergic to everything. That's me. So, yeah. And when you started removing things from your diet, that all started with the fried rice, right? And you removed. Yeah, that was the fried rice experiment that um, worked out really well. So, yeah, yay, fried rice. Yeah. And when you removed corn, that's when you started really feeling better, right? Yeah, I would say, I mean, gluten was a big step in the right direction, but I can say this in the defense of corn or not corn is that I know now that nothing I was eating at the time was truly corn-free. Therefore, for every ingredient I removed, I was also removing more corn. So if I had to guess now which allergies are like the worst, it really comes down to corn, bell pepper, sesame, Brazil nut, cashew, um, swordfish, maybe shellfish, we're not quite sure, but we're pretty sure shellfish, um, and rice. Those are like the eight that could absolutely kill me. Like those are the eight where, you know, oh, maybe even turkey too. We're not sure on turkey, but those are the eight that can cause airborne reactions. Those have caused anaphylaxis before. Oh, and cow's milk. Okay, maybe 10, but you get the point. <laughs> like there are certain ones where it's like, um, those are really extreme. So like corn doesn't come into our house. You know, there are certain things where, like we, we cook rice outside. It doesn't get cooked inside unless I'm wearing my respirator. Um, so there are certain foods where like sesame doesn't come inside the house. In fact, it's only been in our house once in 10 years and that was for a picture and then we got rid of it. Um, we just, we don't bring certain things in. 
And then everything else is um, trial and error. Like, can I actually have it? Was the test right? Oh yeah, the test was right. Don't eat that, you know? Um, so yeah. So you say those foods can, can make you die. And you said that it can also cause anaphylaxis, right? Yeah. So what do, besides those foods, what would less severe allergic reactions typically look like for you? Um, like a less severe reaction would be, you know, killer headaches. It would be extreme ENT issues, um, issues with the tongue, eyes feeling like they're swelling and you're kind of gonna like, I don't know, like you're just in a lot of pain. Uh, the feeling that somebody's taking a baseball bat to your face, joint pains, GI distress, difficulty breathing, but not like so bad that it's anaphylaxis at that point. Waking up feeling like you have the flu, um, nonstop pins and needles, inability to sleep, night terrors, um, things like just, I don't know, a whole host of issues, but yeah. Wow. When would you say you, can you remember the first time you experienced like a severe allergic reaction or at this point you don't remember? Um, probably when I was a kid, it was to shrimp and I didn't eat shrimp for like five or six years after that. Oh. Um, and then I may have had like a small amount later on, but it never, it was never really something I would eat. And then probably after that, probably that trip, that was pretty bad. And then after that, after that, it was just a nonstop constant. But then probably after that, once my diet started to clear up, I started experiencing harder, faster reactions, um, which is not uncommon, especially with people with a severe corn allergy. It's like, once you finally get clean and neutral, then it's like the body, it's almost like it focuses all of its energy on reactions like oh this is here quick everybody let's react you know it's kind of what it's like almost um and so i would say after getting close to neutral because i didn't get neutral until probably like this year um so i got close to neutral and then things would get really hard like that's when we knew cashew was a problem and um sesame and brazil nuts and lots of little things but yeah yeah so shifting towards your family, how, how do you manage um, your family's restricted diet? Because I know it, there's so many and like, there's so many kids. You know, in a weird way to me, it's easy. I know people, they kind of get a little bit baffled when I say that, but for my, for the way my brain works, it is easy. You know, a lot of people like to, a lot of people who know me use words like genius and Mensa and they're not kidding. Um, so to me, it's like, it's just another variable. Like, it's just another, okay, you can't have this cool. All these things go away. And, you know, I'm a hyper organized person and it, I don't know, like it's, I hate to use the word easy because I'm not trying to diminish anyone else's journey. Like everyone's journey is their own and everyone is going to struggle and have different issues. And um, I totally respect that part of the journey. But for me and the way my mind works, it's just not difficult. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. Like, if you can't have these five things, okay, cool. We'll just work around it. You that's know, a really good mentality. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just I don't know. I guess that's just who I am. Like, don't get me wrong. Other things in life are hard though, right? Like, I can't change a tire, so there's that. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So how do nightly dinners usually work? Does everyone eat their separate meal or do you try to include everyone in one? I generally cook for the greatest common denominator, but because we develop a lot of recipes and you have to get like your photos at a certain time of the day, especially during winter months, um, it's not uncommon for me to cook a lot of things in one day and then they just eat leftovers. They're on their own. They're, they're old enough. They can do their own thing. Um, and then, you know, you can eat what you want, essentially. Um, and then sometimes there are things for, you know, person A and B and that refrigerator over there and person C over here and, you know, just different things. But when they were younger, I very much cooked for the lowest or the greatest common denominator. I would go out of my way to make as much that they could eat together. And then things like, like gluten-free pasta, right? So a little bit of pasta for this person, regular pasta for other people. That's how I would separate. Um, we did a lot of rice dishes since everyone could have rice. Um, it was just a lot of getting creative with a lot of basics, right? And I do a lot of scratch cooking. I've, I know for a lot of people, the, the, the greatest struggle is convenience foods. And I feel really bad for people because I want to just tell them like, if you could just let go of the idea of convenience foods and just rely on your own convenience foods, it's actually easier in the long run. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I think my life is pretty easy. I literally have 300 cookies in the freezer. Like it's easy. You know what I mean? Like I've got all this stock, like, and it's all just ready just to go pull out or whatever. I'm not constantly going to stores, reading labels, looking for things. I'm not, you know, on the internet, hounding down companies. I'm, well, okay, I do that for our raise members, but I'm not doing that for myself, right? I walk into every store assuming there's nothing here for me. I'm just here for this, this, and this, and that's it, right? To me, I think there's an emotional freedom there when you're not constantly being let down by, oh, there's nothing for me. You know, I know from when I was first diagnosed, before I knew the, the pitfalls of corn especially, that was the hard part. It was going into a store and walking out with one item, literally a thousand items in the grocery store. And you walk out with one, like that's kind of depressing, like really depressing actually. But the moment I let go of that concept and started looking at it from the reverse, I think everything got easier, but that's me. I know not everyone sees it that way. Yeah. And how many kids are living on, under your roof now? I know. So right now we're down to three, three or left. So, okay, three youngest. So just to give a rundown for all the listeners who don't know, kid one is better when gluten-free and dairy-free, right? Yep. Kid two is allergic <sighs> to dairy, gluten, eggs, right? Yep. He's also red meat and bovine-free. Okay. And kid three cannot have sugar, which I was pretty surprised about. I've never heard yeah. of something like that. Mr. Low No Sugar, oh my goodness, that kid. He's also uh, gluten and dairy-free at this point. He's doing so much better though, like so much. When he sticks to his diet, he does really well. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and kid four has no allergies, but feels left out, which I found hilarious. Yeah, right. Kid four does really well at this point with um, kind of like a cross between keto and paleo, nutrient-dense meals, and lower sugar, but can eat anything, um, but definitely needs to stay on top of things or else she just doesn't do as well as she could, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
So for you personally, what does a typical day of eating look like for you? Do you eat the same thing that your family does or do you eat something no. different? No, oh no. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> um, I typically will eat either once or twice a day and they're usually really small meals like can fit in your hand kind of a thing. Um, on day, Some days I don't really eat much if anything just because I either don't feel like it or, yeah, I just don't feel like it. Um, I would say I pretty much have nine solid ingredients that I can stick to. And from that, I have like cookies, muffins, although I've been taking a break from muffins. I don't like them that much right now. Um, I have bison and I have pancakes, which are basically muffins. And um just some random miscellaneous things. But for the most part, I've been trialing um, a raw sheep's milk from a place locally that does not feed the herd corn. And from that, I've been making my own yogurt and that's been turning out pretty well. So yeah, I just pretty much eat one. Like usually I'll eat one meal and then a couple cookies throughout the day. Yeah. So do you think that having food allergies yourself has made it easier to parent kids with food allergies because you're kind of like- Totally. I feel super sorry for anyone that has a child with food allergies and they don't know what's going on. Like I feel super sorry for them because I have a point of reverence. Um, That's why it kind of bugs me when they're like, yeah, let's keep doing food trials. And I'm like, yeah, let's stop torturing the kid and give them like a break, right? Um, I am all about fully informed consent. I usually say somewhere between ages eight to 10 is where a kid can actually give real consent. I think before that, you know, food trials excessively and all that sort of stuff, I think it's just a quiet form of torture because if, I mean, unless you have a child like kid two, where it's quick and obvious reaction, that's the only time I feel that certain things are more justified than others. But if you have a child with a complex case or delayed reactions, buildup reactions, et cetera, you're just torturing them. Like that's so unfair because they can't, they literally cannot provide assistance in their own diagnosis. They can't say to you, remember the eggs you had me eat three days ago? they still bother me today. They literally can't say those words. Therefore, you're not serving that child. Exactly. I think consent with food allergies is so important. And even with things like food challenges could be so like um, stress inducing on my kids. So I think having their consent and making sure that they're okay with it is so important. And I think that's something every food allergy parent should realize because even though you're like trying to help your child and like expand their diet it could still like take a mental toll like food challenges are always terrifying at least for me and I'm sure for other people I think they're not talking enough about that and I think the other problem too is like people are so used to doing things to kids and not with kids and so then you have a slew of doctors who are like oh just feed them the food right we've had people come to us where like their toddler literally refuses to eat and their kid is like afraid of food and they can't figure out why. And I'm like, okay, cool. Give me their list. And I'll see the list of what they're allergic to. And I'm like, okay, now what are you feeding them? And half of what they're being fed is what they're allergic to. I'm like, wait, why are you feeding them this? And they're like, the doctor said to do it. And I'm like, cool. Why don't you tell the doctor to raise your kid too, right? I mean, obviously I wouldn't say that out loud, but it, it makes me angry because in every single case where it's happened, the parent doesn't have food allergies and they're literally trusting this doctor with the life of their child. And they're putting all their faith and hope in this doctor who's essentially leading them astray, who's not there every day, day in, day out, watching this kid 
you know, fail to thrive because they're afraid to eat because everything they eat induces pain, you know? And so this idea where doctors are like, oh yeah, just feed them the food. I'm like, oh yeah, just eat some rat poison. You know, they wouldn't eat rat poison, but they're telling us to feed, you know, known allergens to kids with food allergies. Like, hello, let's wake up and do things differently. I hate it when people are so adamant about non-essential ingredients, right? They're like, my kid has a black pepper allergy. I need to introduce black pepper. My kid has a papaya allergy. We have to get them to eat papaya safely. Like, who cares about papaya? Like, it's non-essential, right? Like, people have the weirdest concepts around food restrictions. Like, there are hundreds of ingredients, folks. Hundreds. You know, and then people are like, I can't have eggs. It's the end of the world. I'm like, are you serious right now? Like, no, it's not the end of the world, you know? And and of course, you, you have to, like, be really nice and, you know, baby them a little bit when they're first starting. But sometimes I just want to shake people and help them see, like, it's not the end of the world. There's so much for you. You just have to, like, pull off these convenience blinders, right? It's That's the problem with America since the 1950s. Everything is about convenience, right? We've We've had these ads pushing people towards just take the food from the freezer and stick it in your oven and ding, lasagna is ready in 45 minutes, right? Like we've been pushing people towards these easy processed Franken foods for so long that now if you can't have one, it's like, what am I going to do? Eat real food. Oh, but that's so hard. No, it's actually not, you know, and it's getting people to understand like there's so many options. You guys, if there's nothing else that you learn from me, it's that there's so many safe and delicious options out there. You just have to be willing to put in the elbow grease. Yeah. And people like that who rely on convenient foods and are upset because they can't have them, sometimes not being able to eat something is actually good because now you're forced to eat like non-processed foods and cook for yourself and you know exactly what you're eating, which is a lot of people like don't experience that. And it's something very important that people should like realize. I think that's really the silver lining of severe food allergies is, I know at least for me, I did so much research into just food, how it's made, where it comes from. And oh my goodness, I know way too much. And it's really opened my eyes to just big food and food systems. And I think if, if a lot of people understood this, I don't think they'd be reaching for the freezer foods anymore. Well, okay, some of them still would. But I mean, I think more people would kind of wake up and take radical responsibility for their health. Because when you look at the health in our country, right? It's like one in five has this, one in seven has this, one in, you know, we, we started to, to accept these one ins as normal. It's like, hold on, rewind 85 years to our grandparents. None of this stuff was normal. Like, is anybody stopping to like really look and think about how all of these things we're doing it to ourselves like this is not normal it shouldn't be this way yeah and I remember at the beginning of quarantine I wanted to start to eat a bit healthier and I realized I really can't have any of like the processed so-called healthy foods so I had to really do my research and look up recipes of things that are healthy but I'm not allergic to and it taught me a lot and I'm really happy I went through that because now I know that there's a lot of healthy alternatives that aren't processed and are much better for me. Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes people underestimate just the value of adding basic produce, right? You know, like if you love chicken and you just want a healthier chicken, chop up some onions and bell pepper. Like they seem really basic, 
but for every color that you're able to add into your diet, you're increasing the diversity of your biome. And so, you know, if you can have leafy greens, add a different leafy green every day, do some spinach, do some kale, do some collard greens, you know, and if you don't like the bitterness, throw in some dates, don't necessarily use like, you know, juices or straight sugars, but use a whole fruit sugar so that you're still getting the fiber and the minerals and the extra nutrition. And it's like a win-win-win situation. Yeah. So Kathleen, you can't have most types of water. Could you tell me like what you do to deal with that? And what was your journey to get there? Um, it got to the point where swallowing a sip of water was like drinking a glass full of razor blades. And so um, I had, like I was down to probably two to three ounces of water a day. And it was, that's pretty much when they were like, you're going to be dead in 30 days. Like your condition has gotten to a point where if something doesn't change, if things don't get better, there's no way that, you know, you can sustain life. And they were absolutely right. You know, it was, it was a very difficult process. And there's a place up in Washington state. They sell seasonally bottled water from the mountain. It's literally melted snow that they bottle. And I had been researching water in general and why I could have been allergic. We were, in fact, I was working with a doctor who was trying to determine if it was a water allergy or something else. Because so with a true water allergy, it's usually contact reactions, right? But I was having contact reactions and ingestion reactions, which is not normal for a traditional water allergy. And there's only like three or four people in the world, at least written about with these kinds of conditions. And I didn't exactly line up with everyone else. And so we were trying to figure out where do you fall on this spectrum of whatever's going on? So I tried to get this water from Washington. I had just missed their cutoff um, for their season. So by chance, I then found a place in Maine, which say they sell uh, what's called raw water. And they actually have the only exemption in the United States to not treat the water. They don't treat the water, they don't treat the bottles. So I called them up, talked to them quite a bit, and they sent me uh, water in, uh, in plastic and in glass to try it out. And I was able to consume both of them and not be in pain. And it was like, whoa, it was eye-opening. And that's when we were finally able to determine I wasn't allergic to water. I'm allergic to the processing of water. So then of course we dug deeper and started realizing all water, even the water filters, the, even the corn-free water filters I was getting, they all have corn contamination in them. And that was the real issue. I was literally just drinking a little bit of poison every day. And so as I was getting closer to neutral, getting closer to eliminating things for every real reintroduction of an allergen it was just like the the issues were coming on harder and faster you know and so of course if you're swallowing razor blades you're going to stop swallowing right um and so that was really the turning point in water was just getting to raw water and what's really interesting is there's two of us it's myself and one other customer and every so often we have a problem with the water and Brian, the owner, he's been able to deduce it has to do with the flow rate of the spring. And so with certain flow rates, when they bottle, um, I guess it's sediment or something that gets picked up and the two of us happen to react to it. So beyond that, that's the water I drink. Um, 
I don't drink anything else. I cook with it. I rinse stuff with it. It's, it's my water. Yeah. So you talk a little bit about when you were told that you had 30 days left to live. So after you received your diagnosis, what, what were you, what did you feel? And like, what, what did you do in those 30 days? Honestly, I was pretty sick. I slept a lot. Like that's, I I was just, it was kind of like, get up, get the kids off to school, go back to bed, you know, and the kids were in after school care at the time. And so then we'd pick them up. I'd feed them dinner, play with them a bit, go back to bed. I mean, I was, I was really sick. Like I was just really sick. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like I had a bucket list or anything. It was just, I was just really sick. So do you still experience like struggles with like food and like not knowing like why you're feeling a certain way or is that sort of no I mean it's it's pretty obvious now it's like oh I ate this and now I feel that like it's it's very clearly cause and effect um it's rare that it's not food-based so I think I'm just hyper aware of it at this point okay so I was wondering could you tell me a little bit about the industrial mask you use and when you started using it so when I first, when we first determined I was allergic to corn, found this really cool group of people that talked about corn allergies. And um, I also have environmental allergies and chemical sensitivities. And so people were talking about different masks that they were wearing. And um, I started looking into different masks. The respirator I wear now, back in the day, it was like $700. And we were like, there's no way we're spending 700 bucks on this thing. And we don't even know if it'll work. So I started off with um, just some organic face masks. It took four layers of masking to make a difference. But because of that, just to catch a breath, you were like, (gasps) because you had to breathe through so many layers. Um, And even then it still didn't take care of everything. And then when the price of my respirator came down, we bought one. And I actually talked with one of the scientists who works on that mask. And he was like, we were trying to figure out which filters I would need. And I was telling him what was wrong with me. And he had suggested the filter a step down. He was convinced that the filter I have now was going to be overboard and I didn't need it. And I needed the one that was a number down from mine. So I experimented with three filters. The one I have, which is the highest level of filtering, the next one down and the one after that. Um, and I just kind of threw myself in the deep end. We drove over to a fast food restaurant put on my respirator and I walked inside and I just stood there to see what would happen. Normally something like that would within a couple of minutes, have my tongue swelling, massive headache, and I'd be on the ground within a few minutes. Right. So I'm standing there. And after about 10 minutes, I'm like, cool, I think it works. Right. So that was the highest level of filtering. And then we tried the next level and I walked in and I could totally smell stuff. And I was like, I'm just going to leave. I don't even want to, I don't want to have a problem. It doesn't work as effectively as the other one. We didn't even bother with the third option. So I just used the highest one, even though that scientist was convinced that wasn't the one I was like, you know what, I'm happy I got it. So it pretty much, if I leave the house, it comes with me. And um, it's pretty much the only way that I can personally survive. Like without it, I wouldn't be able to leave the house. I just wouldn't. Yeah. And you started using it before masks were- Oh were yeah. I was, I was like the OG mask wearer. Um, it was actually really hard because I was harassed a lot. I was, um, 
you know, escorted out of the building by security in multiple situations. I had to really push hard and fight back and really be a trailblazer for that respirator. And anytime I would talk about it online, you know, people would always message and say, I hate that that happened to you. And I'm so afraid to wear my mask because I'm afraid the same thing will happen to me. And I had to wear a respirator probably like three or four years before everybody else was wearing one. And so now it's kind of weird on the flip side because people look at me like, wow, that's really cool. And I'm like, yeah, you weren't saying that last year. Last year, you guys were still ready to throw an egg at me. But now all of a sudden, I'm like the queen bee. So, you know, that's life. Do you like it now that everyone else is wearing a mask? No, absolutely not. I, oh. I, I am so pro individual choice and pro like, I don't think other people, it's not your job to take care of my health, right? It's just not. And I, I could, you know, be like, oh, everybody needs to stop using all these chemicals so I can go outside safely. No, I'm just going to wear my respirator. Like it's my, I believe in radical responsibility for one's own personal health. Like that's just me. You know, I don't, I don't subscribe to a lot of what's going on right now, but that's a whole different story altogether. So I don't know. It's just, I think to each his own, you know, and I think if, I think for people like myself, the real responsibility is if you can't go somewhere or do something safely, you need to stay home and shield yourself. But I don't think the world should be catering to us. You know, and I feel the same way about food allergies. People who, you know, they get upset because they can't go to a restaurant safely. And I'm like, hold on. So you expect this restaurant owner to invest a million dollars into safe equipment and safe ingredients and all this stuff for like 35 customers? No. That's not cool. I really firmly believe that people like me and you, we should be starting our own restaurants. We need to serve our own community because we're the ones who will know how to do it right from the get-go, how to do it safely. And then, you know, the real challenge is just making food that's good enough that other people want to, you know, come and come to the establishment and eat the food as well. But I don't think that, I don't think we should be expecting the world to cater. It just doesn't make sense to me, but I've never been that kind of a person either. I've I don't know, I've always been a pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of person. Yeah, I can't, I couldn't agree more. So going back to your kids, um, did you know that your kids would have food allergies? Like, did you have a feeling or, and how did no. you find out about it? Um, let's see. So kid two was the easiest because as soon as an allergen was introduced, you know, he turned red, he threw up. It was really obvious. Like it was, he was the easy one. Um, the others, it was really more like misdiagnosis, right? So we were looking at, you know, behavior issues, cognitive issues, this issue, that issue, GI distress. Like we were looking at all these other things and, you know, a lot of things sort of happened all at once for us. I was doing a lot of research about different things and just learning a lot. And the more I would learn, um, the more I would be able to draw the conclusions and just kind of start doing things for ourselves. So it, I think it just all came about just with learning and again, taking that responsibility element, because for me, I get so tired of having to rely on, you know, someone with a bunch of initials after their name, taking a guess, you know, and, and I respect what they do. And, I, but I also get like, you can't spend 36 hours straight with my kid to understand what's going on. You know, you're spending 25 minutes with us based on a questionnaire and then trying to assess from that when the reality is, is I'm the one doing all the work. I'm the one who's taking all the notes. I'm the one who's 
understanding what's going on. So doesn't it make sense that I do extra research so I can make more conclusions and get to the solution faster? Um, do you mind explaining a little bit about Kid 3? Because I thought it was so fascinating that he couldn't have sugar. In the oh, yeah. Okay, so Mr. Love No Sugar, when he was four, about four years old, yeah, he would have been four, he was getting into a lot of trouble. Like, he was always our hyper, high-energy, troublemaking child. He was, and everybody just always assumed, like, that's his personality, even though he's, like, a problem child, right? Um, he, he was just loud, hyper energetic, like, and then they wanted to diagnose him with ADHD and I, that didn't sit right with me. It never sits right with me when you start diagnosing a four or five year old with stuff and wanting to give them seriously heavy pills that they wanted to give him, they gave him blood pressure pills. They were like, well, if we can bring down his blood pressure, we can regulate him, et cetera. And I'm like, yeah, this sounds terrible. But at the time I was still, I would say I was only in my early awakening days of like, get out of the system, you know? So I was still kind of going along with, okay, well, you're the expert. Clearly you've seen this before, you know what's going on. And he got, he was getting into a lot of trouble at school, preschool. And um, one of the other kids, their parents wanted to take out a restraining order against him. He is such a problem child, right? And we were also at the same time introducing desserts to the you know, uh, vegetables to the kids. And so the deal was you try a vegetable, you get dessert. It was like the ticket to freedom, right? And I was making some good stuff, right? And um, he got to a point where he got into so much trouble at school that their dad was like, that's it. You don't get any sugar for 30 days. And all the kids were like, oh, it was like a prison sentence around here, right? Because he would take them out for Slurpees and, you know, like just different stuff. So after two weeks, he was a different kid altogether. It was like, what? Mind you, around the same time, he was on this blood pressure medication and not once, but twice he comes to me and he says, my heart hurts. And the first time he said it, I thought he just meant he was sad, right? And I'm like, oh, come here, right? And I spent some time with him. And my hand happened to land on his chest. And it was like his heart was going to explode. And I'm like, oh, he means his heart hurts, right? So the next time that happened, I'm like, okay, this is, we need to get him off this medication. And then around the same time, he lost his dessert, right? Within two weeks, totally different kid. He was well-behaved, well-mannered, quiet. He was like this angel. And you're like, What? on earth well two weeks later he gets his dessert back he takes a couple bites of dessert and i i kid you not people think i joke when i say this but i really mean this he puts down his fork gets up walks over to the couch jumps up throws himself against the wall and lands back on the couch and does it again multiple times when i say he was throwing himself against the wall he was literally bouncing off the wall he was throwing himself in and landing on the couch and we were like wide-eyed what the crap is going on here, right? And um, from there, I'm like, all we did differently was give him back his sugar. So I knew sugar could be a problem with a person because I had a problem with sugar. I knew about sugar before I knew about corn because um, I actually would throw up from having too much cane sugar. And um, I decided, okay, let me just start 
taking sugar out of his diet, right? So I started with like the obvious stuff and just removing things and he just became a better child. And then one day he was really hungry and we were taking them to get haircuts and I used to keep Z bars in the car, you know, cause it's like organic and healthy and all this stuff, right? Of course, now I know better, like, ugh, don't even get me started. So he eats two Z bars. And at that point he loses all control of himself, throwing himself all over the ground, rolling around. Like he, he's just out of control. And I'm like, okay, I found his limits. His limits are two Z bars and it's 20 grams of added sugar. And so that's when I said, okay, we're going to shoot for less than that for every meal. So, I mean, obviously you know, you're not even supposed to have like 40 grams of added sugar as an adult yet. We're giving a lot to children. And of course, the more I learned about his condition, the more I'm like, what is wrong with us as a society, right? We're like, here, kids, have some sugar all the time, 24-7. Like, here's your sugar drip, right? It's, it's bad. Um, you know, and what's really interesting is as a competition to myself one day, I got him down to four grams of added sugar for the entire day. And that night he told me it was so easy to be good today. And I'm like blown away, right? Um, so yeah, he just, his body does not do well with sugar, food colorings, like highly processed things, additives. So he eats organic and um, he learned how to read food labels when he was pretty young. And it's a really cute story. When he was little, kid, kid two was given a treat at school. The teacher went out of her way to find something he could eat. And it was like, um, highly processed candy, right? And so I was like, okay, you can put it in your snack bin. Each child has a snack bin. It's all color coded and they have their names. And there's a rule that you can't take from other people's bins and you can't put it, you know, it was all highly monitored and regulated. So he walks up to me one day, kid three. He's like, have you seen this? This was in kids two snack bin. And I'm like, of course I'm torn at this point. Cause I'm like, uh, I know it's really bad for him. And teacher was so nice and got him this like gift and I'm like I know and then he starts reading me the label and he goes he he reads like you know chemicals that's sugar such and such another form of sugar such and such that's a chemical such because I had taught him how to decipher a food label at like the age of five so I've got this little five-year-old telling me chemicals and sugars and I finally said fine just get rid of it like I couldn't have it in the house at that point and that was a real turning point for him. And it was a turning point for all of us because it's like, okay, he's going to be the, the, you know, straight and narrow, like these things can't be here. If I can't have it, nobody else can. And, you know, everybody ended up eating really healthy and it just, it, it's, it's, you know, it, I, I often wonder how many people can't truly tolerate the foods that we have. And again, it goes back to that one in this many has this one in that many has that one in this many has this, you know, how many kids really have ADHD? I'd guess maybe 10% of the kids, number of kids who are diagnosed. They have all these kids on pills. Do they really need it? Or do these kids need a different diet, right? There was a study experiment type thing done on a group of delinquent kids in the Pacific Northwest many, many years ago. It was a high school. And they just, it was a high school for delinquent kids. And they decided they were going to feed these kids local organic food. That was like the only real thing they, that was like the variable. Kids all made a turnaround right? They started behaving better. They were showing up to school on time. Attitudes improved. The ability to learn and um, just the ability to understand and comprehend improved greatly. Test scores went up. Everything changed. All they changed 
were their diets while they were at school. They didn't even account for snacks and dinners and everything else, just food at school. If they can make that big of a difference with that group of kids, imagine what we could do with everyone. And that's what bugs me about the food system. It's all, it's all a big money system at this point, right? It's how much money can we make off of this? Well, how much, you know, can we skim off of this? What can we, what additives can we use to bring down the costs and all this stuff and how addictive can we make it? And it's no longer about like nourishing people. And that's, I think that's a core problem. And yeah, yeah. that's just another story for another day though. Yeah, no, it's such a good point. I was thinking that too. Like, I wonder how many kids are misdiagnosed with like disorders like ADHD. It's just crazy. Cause it, a lot of it could be from their diet. Absolutely. I know for me, I had crippling depression, like literally wanted to throw myself off of a bridge every day for years. Turns out it was the food, right? Our youngest, she, if you feed her enough food that she doesn't work well with, after a couple of months, she starts to get depressed. And if you switch her back up, within a week, she's just bubbly and like totally different. Like totally different person, right? How many people are misdiagnosed with all these ailments? And, and I'm not trying to you know discredit these ailments, they exist. I just question how rampant it really is you know, compared to what would happen if we just fed everybody real food for a month? Yeah, it's a really good question. <laughs> so I was just wondering, what advice would you give to a parent with a child who's newly diagnosed with food allergies and they don't know where to start? Um, number one, assume the test result. Well, okay, I'm going to say this if your child cannot give consent. That's my advice. Assume the test results are correct and eliminate those foods. Get your child to neutral. Um, if they are a person with any kind of skin reactions, take photos. That way you can keep track of them so you're not trying to remember it all. Um, if your kid has non-traditional reactions, keep a detailed food journal so that you understand you know, where you're going. Don't be in such a mad rush to replace things. Like you know, if, you, if your kid's diagnosed with a wheat allergy, don't go out and buy every gluten-free cookie on the planet. Get your kid to neutral, have them eat real food because you may be dealing with underlying medical conditions due to deficiency because of malabsorption over time. There's so many other things that could be going on. So just eat real food for a while and then start to reintroduce mindfully, slowly with a journal and go from there. Um, you know, if you need great recipes, Ray's has over 500 recipes now. And um, you've got this killer advanced recipe search where you have more than 85 filters where you can put in individual allergens and diet types and food families, and you can customize results. And it makes for an incredible, powerful tool um, that food, like there is literally no one else serving the food allergy community like this, the way that search engine does. Even if you find, um, you know, like an app where you can put in certain restrictions, you can't put in the, put it in the way that we've done it, where you can say, take out all nightshades and I'm paleo and I'm vegan and I can't have sugar, right? Like we give you hyper combination possibility. And we're also looking at a lot of less common allergens as well, which are greatly overlooked. Um, I would also say find resources and bloggers that get you close to what you need to be. So if you have a child that can't do eggs, tree nuts, and peanuts, find books and things like that, that get you there. That way you're not constantly trying to reinvent the wheel because the hardest thing when you get started is getting started, right? Especially if you're like, wanting to bake and you're egg-free or gluten-free, don't even try to experiment. 
follow something that you know is going to work so that you understand how the ratios and how the science behind it works, then you can experiment should you still desire to experiment. But I would just say, you know, as a parent, you need to grieve the loss. You know, it's, you're losing something and your life is going to get harder. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's not like tomorrow's going to be easier all of a sudden. It's going to be a while before it gets easy again. Um, but then make a really good plan and get organized. Prioritize mental health and self-care as well, because as a parent without food allergies, if you're managing a child with food allergies or even multiple children with food allergies, like it is so easy to feel like their diagnosis is ruling your life, right? And so getting organized and having organized chaos essentially is really a big part of it. And I would say that if you can get someone to help you, um, you know, if you need a friend or a family member to help you prep food so that you can have a freezer stock so that they come in once a week or whatever, or if you need to, you know, I don't know, not buy a new car and instead use that monthly car payment money towards hiring an assistant who can help, that should be the priority, right? Because there comes a point where as a parent, the stressors and the mental health element can take a huge toll on you. And if you're not on your A game, you can't serve your children, especially if they're depending on you, right? If they're teenagers, it's different. They can cook for themselves. They can get themselves places. They can probably drive, right? But if you have a little kid, you have to be on your A game. So before we go, Kathleen, where can people follow you and find your website? I would say the number one place to see us is on Instagram, at TheologyChef, lots of cool stuff. And our website, you can go to theallergychef.com. And from there, you can see links to everything, our bakery, our bookshop. There's a link to raise. There's a link to a newly diagnosed program that you can sign up for for free. And we send you like a meal plan for the weekend. And we get you in um, like a webinar where we teach you all the, the basics, how to read a label and how to do these things that really you're not being told um, at a doctor's office, right? We kind of help fill that gap and get you on your way and started on a journey to success. Amazing. So Kathleen, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was so amazing speaking with you. It was awesome being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to support Just Allergy Things mission in promoting food allergy awareness, you can follow us at Just Allergy Things on Instagram. And make sure to check out the Just Allergy Things magazine on justallergythings.com. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, bye!